So I am starting a new series today. We are starting a new series together on the Bible's vision for how women and men are to work together in God's world and his kingdom. Now, I realize that raising topics of sex and gender can produce lots of anxiety, hostility, defensiveness, uh, confusion, uh, pain, and there are legitimate reasons for this. On the one hand, we live in a time when uh, the myths, we live in a cultural climate where there are a lot of competing narratives and there's a lot of turbulence. And a lot of people are concerned, I think, with justification uh, that these cultural narratives are influencing the church more than the scriptures are. There is also, so there's a legitimate question, there's legitimate um, concern and confusion there, anxiety. Uh, we also, uh, though, the other thing is true, we also have to acknowledge that in the history of the church, there, have been, there has been abuse, marginalization, silencing of women. And that we haven't always done so well. In fact, we haven't often done very well as a church. And so, historically... And, and I'm talking about the church at large. And so that brings a lot of pain and struggle. And then there's just the fact that people who come to the Bible and want to follow Jesus and believe in its authority have disagreements over this issue and how to put all the data together and how to read the scriptures together. And the reality is, is that we don't like difference and debate and argument. And so that brings some anxiety, right? So there are all these factors that are coming in that raise tons of questions. Now, in a series like this, I am not going to be able to, and I don't even pretend to be able to answer all of your questions that may arise when raising a topic like this one. I'm not going to be able to do it. However... I do want to know what those questions are uh, as I can, best I can, address those as they come up, as the text speaks to them. And so we're going to do a couple of things. We have a box in the gallery where you can write down a question and leave it there. You can do that with your name on it or anonymously, either one. And I will read those and be thinking through those as I'm preparing and thinking about the series. We also want to do something else. This is something we've been wanting to do for a while now. But we are going to start having, uh, on occasion, um, after-service sermon series discussions. And so uh, we'll do this in probably about a month, but you can look out for the announcement where we'll meet in the conference room, and I, when others, will have a conversation about things that I've been preaching, things that have been preached, and we'll have a dialogue and questions that have been raised. So that's still not going to answer every question, I know, but I hope that it provides some places for us to process this together. Well, we're starting this series, and we're doing so by going to the beginning, because, as we all learned, it's a very good place to start. 
We're going to Genesis, the foundational text, because this is the creation of humanity. And this text, these early chapters in Genesis, they set the framework and the categories for how we are to think about this moving forward and how the rest of the biblical authors think about these subjects. And so we're going to spend a couple weeks here looking at Genesis 1, 2, and 3. As we do so, I just want you to know up front that a lot of the common categories that we bring to this conversation, I am not going to use or talk about. See, when we come to this conversation, we think about things like authority and submission, patriarchal hierarchy or egalitarianism or equality. We ask, and uh, these kind of questions that we bring, like gender roles, we talk about gender roles. When we bring these categories to the text, those actually shape the questions that we ask and our reading of the text. But I'm not going to use those categories very much or address them very much because I don't think those categories adequately fit what's going on in the scripture themselves. And I think that actually that, that, that when we come with questions like who's in charge and who has power and did Adam have authority over Eve or did Eve usurp Adam's authority or are women equal to men and if so, in what way? And are you a complementarian or an egalitarian? When we come with those questions, I think that we, um, it hinders us from seeing actually the way the scriptures frame this conversation. And so, so my goal is simply over these next two weeks especially is to lay a foundation. And I realize that during this, you're going to have a lot of disagreement with me, whoever you are. I'm okay with that. I hope we can search the scriptures together and look at the scriptures together. Uh, and and I, I know that as we, as we do this, there's still going to be a lot of questions. I'm okay with that too. We'll continue to ask these questions for the rest of our lives. But as we do so, I think there's at least some value in you hearing how one person who happens to be your pastor thinks through this issue, and wrestles through it. So that's my goal. And with that in mind, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for the people in this room, your blood-bought lambs, for whom you have given everything. And I thank you for the people in this room who do not know you, but who bear your beautiful image. Jesus, you promised to send us Holy Spirit who would lead us into all truth. You are the truth. So lead us to yourself and bind the evil one. He is a liar and has been so from the beginning. Would you bind Satan and lead us to yourself that you, who are the truth, might set us free and we might be free indeed. Amen. Well, I grew up up at the end of the Cold War. 
about half of you, maybe less than that, remember the Cold War. The Cold War was a war that was fought through proxies, and it was all about it was all about maintaining equilibrium and the balance of power. I learned this actually probably the first time when I was a little boy and I watched Rocky IV. I mean, you know, Ivan Draco goes out and he beats Apollo Creed. And then after he beats Apollo Creed, Rocky Balboa has to avenge him by going to Russia to beat Ivan Draco. And what I started to realize at the end of this is that this competition was not about Rocky Balboa and Ivan Draco. It was about the USA and the USSR. Maybe you remember that. Or maybe you remember 1980s and the Olympics and the miracle on ice when the U.S. played the Russian hockey team. And we started to realize that these weren't simply about hockey games. They were about who has the advantage and the balance of power. Or maybe you remember Apollo versus Spudnik. Proxies. Proxies that were fighting out a Cold War. You know, I've heard the relationship between men and women described as a Cold War. The Cold War played out on my, during my recess as an elementary school student. See, the kingdom of girls, they had taken over the slide, the play structure, and the swing. But the kingdom of boys, we had taken over the soccer field with its goals. And as long as everybody stayed in their lanes, as long as they just stayed in their places, then, then the equilibrium would be okay, the balance of power would work out, and things wouldn't get riled up. But every once in a while, every once in a while, a soccer ball, a stray soccer ball would just roll into the play structure. Or every once in a while, a group of boys would just go and take over the merry-go-round. And then, and then the balance of power was upset. And the Cold War turned into war. But most of the time, it was simply played out through proxies. Like, I remember the proxy event that was most, most, left the biggest impression on me. You see, every year... I was in an elementary school that had two other elementary schools. We were all one school, but we had different locations, different branches. And once a year, we competed against one another. It was like the Olympics. And we would get ready for field day. And there was everything from wheelbarrow races to relays. But, you know, in preparation for the relay, which was the end-all, be-all of who is on top and which elementary school branch is the best, the, the race that set that standard was the relay. But in order to practice for the relay, you know what we had to do? The boys had to race against the girls in our own branch in practice. And I remember it was like it was yesterday. My friend Betsy Weintraub got the baton, and she smoked us as the anchor leg, and we just got annihilated. At that point, we were totally ashamed, and we didn't know, based on the messaging that we had heard growing up, how we could ever be men again. The balance of power was disrupted, and what were we to do? Well, we had to retaliate somehow, some way. 
often this would come up as a prank, or maybe we would just linger over the water fountain a little longer when we were supposed to, when there was a girl behind us, because, because it's a cold war. And you have to show who has power through these proxy events. You know, I spent a lot of time with couples in marriage. I listened to them. I think that Cold War is still playing out in so many ways. It, it, looks like, it looks like hearing someone say, well, well, she can have all the haircuts she wants, but she better not, she better not mention my playing golf on Saturdays. Or it can look like uh, my spouse went on a trip, a business trip or some, uh, something else, and I had to stay home with ki the kids, and they better realize that there's some payback coming back because I've accrued some points here. And we've got to keep it even. We at least can't upset the equilibrium that's been established. You see, a lot of us, we, knowing it or not, we go into marriage, and we stay in marriage as if it's, a negotiation where we're trying to get the best deal. I mean, I look at myself and I'm like, well, you know, I don't really have tall, dark, and handsome, but what can I bring to the table? What can I get? The most bang for the most buck. It's a cold war. It plays out all over and it is so sad. When did this cold war start? It started in Genesis chapter 3. The Bible tells us. You know the story. Eve is in the garden. The serpent comes up and he deceives her. She takes the fruit that Adam was commanded not to eat. She eats some of the fruit. Then she gives it to her husband who eats some of the fruit. At that point, they feel shame. They hide from one another. They hide from God. And enmity, hostility is introduced into the world. Genesis 3.15 says that there is enmity that's introduced into the world. And then in verse 16, God says to Eve, From now on, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Well, what does that mean? Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Because that sounds kind of ambiguous, but we don't have to ask. Because in the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, we have this same phrase. Cain! Sin's desire will be for you, and you must rule over it. In other words, the desire for is the desire to take over, and the rule is the, the aggressive act of maintaining power. In other words, what God is talking about is that as a result of the fall, the relationship between men and women will be marked by competition and hostility and strife. Desiring to take power or to maintain power. And when it's not a hot war, it's a cold war. But you know, things weren't always supposed to be that way. That's not the only way it can be. Because in the beginning, it was not so. Genesis chapter 1, please turn to the end of the chapter. 
It's Friday. It's the sixth day. It's the afternoon. In the morning, God made all the animals. For five days, he flung the world into the existence. But on Friday morning, he made the animals. And then Friday afternoon, he saved his best work for last. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man or humanity in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And subdue it. Let us make humanity in our image. Did you know that you are image of God? Whoever you are. Whether you believe in God or not, you are image of God. That is who you are. To be image of God is to be God's concrete resemblance on earth. And everyone... Everyone fully bears the image of God. Men and women are image of God. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created male and female. He created them. And you aren't part image of God. It's not like you are half image of God and there's another half of image of God and you put that together and it's a whole image of God. No, this isn't partitive. That's not how it works. You are fully image of God. Whether you are a man or a woman, whoever you are, you are image of God and you are very good. Look at verse 31. God looked over all he had made and he said, you are very good. In your maleness, in your femaleness, you are very good. And you are image of God. And because you are image of God, you are given a calling, whoever you are. The calling, verse 26, is to have dominion. The calling, verse 7, is to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. 27, 28, fill the earth and subdue it. And everyone is given this calling. In other words, it is a mutual calling. What we are going to see over the next two weeks is that this is a mutual calling that it is an embodied calling, and that it is a typological calling. But this week, I just want to look at the mutual part, that it is a mutual calling. It's mutual in at least two ways. It's mutual in the fact that this is a calling that is held in common. Notice that both Adam and Eve, both male and female, are tasked. Verse 26, let them have dominion. Verse 28, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. What God is calling on humanity to do as those who bear his image is to righteously rule on his behalf. Dominion language is kingship language. And in the ancient world, an image of God, an image was put in various places to exert a king's authority over the land. You see, you are called to be God's ambassador, his concrete representation, whoever you are in this world. You are his image, and that means you are called to have dominion. You are a king and a queen. Do you know that? I'm not sure we know that. You 
are a king and a queen. Have you read the book, A Little Princess? Sarah is, grows up in India, I believe, and maybe Africa, and she is dropped off at a school in London. She comes from a very wealthy background, and the kids around her and the adult who is uh, watching over her, uh, they have an ambiguous relationship to this. So they like what she can contribute as far as wealth. And some of them, though, they don't like her for who she is and her wealth. And so they come up with a name for her. They call her the Little Princess. It, it was meant to be, in, for some, a jab. But she took it on and said, no, I'm going to act like royalty in how I treat other people, no matter the circumstance. Because when her, her father dies, she, she is, everything is taken away and she is living in poverty. But she says, I am still a little princess. That's who I am. And so I will act as becomes royalty and how I treat others. I don't care what's happened to you. I don't care what station of life you are in. You are royalty. You are a king. You are a queen on this earth. And you have been given a calling, tasked with an incredible calling. Men and women, women and men are called indiscriminately to rule on God's behalf. But they are not just called, they are also both empowered. Did you notice that? Verse 28. And God blessed them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. You know, oftentimes we think that we have to work to get the blessing. And if we work well enough, then we will get the blessing. But you see, this God, no, he doesn't work that way. This is all about grace. Blessing first. And then work second. And what does it mean to be blessed? It means to have God's presence with you. His powerful presence to empower you. So both women and men have been equally empowered to rule on God's behalf. That has not always been believed. It has often been doubted. Aristotle who was an ancient philosopher who kind of sets the stage for much of Western thinking after that. Aristotle believed that a woman was an incomplete man who was kind of a deformed man. This was not just an idiosyncratic view, but actually after Aristotle, this became the common view in society. And guess what? It influenced the church as well. The church fathers were heavily indebted to Aristotle when it comes to their talk of men and women. And that's clear. As much as they did for us in regards to the Trinity and the scriptures and other matters, they were influenced more by the culture, I think, than the Bible. And after that, after that, 
the tradition continued in in the Western church and Western theology. You know, some people are concerned today, and there's a lot of anxiety, that the church is just giving uh, in to culture on these matters. And I want you to know that I think that that is a valid concern. Judith Butler is a gender theorist who believes that gender is fundamentally constructive and performative, and she has had massive impact on our society, and I believe in the church, and in in very unhelpful and problematic ways, which I will address next week. But here's the thing. The reason I think that you're justified in your anxiety about culture influencing the church on these issues more than the Bible is because it's always been that way, unfortunately. But because, because before there was Judith Butler, there was a philosopher named Aristotle. And so we have to get back to asking, what does the scripture teach? Notice that God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, let him subdue the earth. Let her be fruitful and multiply. It doesn't say that she is to raise children while he is to raise fences. It doesn't say that he, she is to work in the home while he is to work out in the field. It doesn't say anything about who takes out the trash, who cooks the meals, who does the dishes, or who earns the most money. You will not find that in Genesis. And that is not the foundation that we are called to build off of. No, both are called to task of creating culture and caring for children. Women and men have a vested interest, both of them have a vested interest in humanity's great commission. It's mutual. They hold it in common. But it's not only mutual because they hold it in common, it's also mutual because it is collaborative. Verse 28 says, be fruitful and multiply. You know, that's the first thing that God says to them. The first thing that God says to humanity after he creates them is this, and God said, this is the first direct speech of God in the Bible. He says to them, be fruitful and multiply. Right after it says, mind you, that he created them in his image, male and female. Well, here's my question. How was Adam supposed to be fruitful and multiply on his own? How was Eve supposed to be fruitful and multiply on her own? See, they would actually need to work together in order to fulfill this common calling that God had given them. They would have to work together. And it doesn't just apply, by the way, to making babies. You say, well, why do you say that, Kyle? Well, for two reasons. One is that being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth and subduing it are but two aspects of the same vocation. If you look at the text, this is one command with two aspects to it. And this command is foundational for the rest of humanity going forward. And just to put a point on it, if you read the book of Acts, throughout the book of Acts, Acts echoes these words 
in the Greek Bible, be fruitful and multiply. Are fruitful and multiply. And do you know who Luke, the author of Acts, what he applies this to? The church. In other words, this we need one another not just to make babies. We need one another to make disciples of all nations. For the church to grow. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God comes to the man and he says that it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now we'll deal with God calling Eve a helper next week. But this idea of a helper fit for does have the idea of being corresponding to. That the relationship was to be one of mutual reciprocity, where something is generated out of it because they both bring unique things to the table. There's a correspondence. And they are to work together in that correspondence. You see, we, we tend to think that, that, well, one plus one equals two. And so what we have to have is we have a half plus a half equals a whole, or worse still, a quarter plus three quarters equals a whole. But when the man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two become one flesh, Genesis 2, 26, they don't cease being individuals. One whole image of God plus one whole image of God equals a third thing, a new thing. Because this is a generative project. We are not in an economy of scarcity. We are in an economy of abundance. The abundance of the God who loves and his love spills over into generating new things. And so we labor together. We labor together not, not, as, not as competitors in, a market, in the market need one another for the market to move forward, but as teammates need one another. You see, if teammates stay competitive for too long, it's, it's trouble. I remember my days of playing football, and some of us only played defense, and some people only played offense. And I knew we had lost the game when the defense started going, well, if the offense would just do their job. At that point, I knew that there was no way that we were going to win, that the game had been given away because we were acting as competitors in a Cold War. See, we cannot have a generative existence and fill this calling if we are stuck in a cold war when territory is, where territory is staked out and proxy wars are fought at the water fountain. Henry Kissinger, the great statesman during the Cold War who did lots of negotiations, he once said, I am convinced that no one will win the war between the sexes. For there is far too much fraternizing with the enemy. I know someone who fraternized with the enemy. His name was Jesus. He knew how to put an end to the Cold War. He knew how to put an end to the hostility. What did he do? He came to his enemies. 
And he not only just put an end to the Cold War between God and sinful humanity, he also, did you notice, put an end to the Cold War between the sexes because, you see, he would go out and he would offer and share a drink of water with a Samaritan woman. And he would call Mary to sit as a disciple, equal with the rest, at his feet to study. And, and he, who had all power and authority, would not use that power and authority or exploit it for his own advantage or hold on to it, but rather he would pour himself out, becoming a servant, a slave, even to the point of death, death on the cross. And there, he put enmity to death. And he killed the hostility. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. The same word that's used in Genesis 3.15, the enmity that was introduced into the world, Jesus puts an end to how? Not by exploiting his rights or even caring about power, but laying down his life for the other. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments, all rules, all regulations, all expectations for the purpose to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. Thus making peace in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far away and peace to you who are near. So sisters and brothers, believers in Jesus Christ, peace, peace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.